Hold on to your butt. <laughs> you were saying? Welcome to episode 121 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. I am your co-host, Mary, and tonight, as always, I am joined by my awesome co-host, Darren, and we are into 2024. It is a new year, so happy new year to Darren, as well as to all of our awesome listeners and viewers of this podcast. Um, we are into, I guess it's our fourth year of this podcast now, which is crazy to think yeah. about. But anyway, yes, happy 2024, everybody. We are back. Yeah. Yeah, but happy 2024 to you, Mary. It's good to be back again, recording in a whole new year. I think it is, yeah, I think it is year four. We started this in 2020, so yeah. um, so we're back. You've put up with me for four whole years. Well, not quite, almost. It's no, getting there, though. More like the other getting way there. around, I think, but eh, that's, that's probably true. I want to be a gracious host, so what are you drinking tonight? Oh, oh my goodness gracious. A new year resolution. You're going to start with it right. Well, I'm my ready. resolution was not to come up with more creative intros, that's for sure. Okay, well, well, job done. I'm drinking this called Fegley's. It's called Talk to Me Juice. We got it when we were down in um, in Allentown, PA, a week or so ago. I'm drinking it out of my Patriot mug today, which, um, well, I'm just going to leave that alone. I might want to talk about why I'm drinking my Patriot's mug. Mary, I'm not exactly in the mood, but I will tell you this, though. I appreciate what you said, and I'm going to reciprocate that question to you. Easy for me to say. What are you drinking? I am drinking Out of Focus Double IPA uh, from Appalachian Brewing uh, Company, which is in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So if you all find yourself there, awesome place, great beer, great atmosphere, awesome food. It's a lot of fun to just go hang out there. Um, and yeah, as I said, great beer. And we're on to episode 121. Oh, yes. And I'm drinking it out of my The North Civil War Champions mug because the subject matter of tonight mm -hmm. is one of the reasons that will lead to some victories for the north yeah, for this, the union we're gonna army have some, we're, we're gonna have some fun tonight mayor we're gonna talk about uh, a part of the army of the potomac that i think is extremely underrated and that is the bmi and by bmi we don't mean body mass index mary this is not an episode of hancock the later years <laughs> what we're talking about here is the bureau of military information right and we're going to talk about this this is a group that basically his sole purpose was to gather and report as much information about Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia as possible to the Army of the Potomac, every edge they could get. In this group, it's through espionage and information gathering. Uh, they use throughout the war on both sides, but we're going to discuss this specific group, the Bureau of Military Information, and how instrumental and underrated they were in the Union's victory at the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. And it's, you know, it, the thing about it, though, is, is the BMI is, is, is very underrated and very understudied, you know, despite the importance to the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg. <clears throat> it is not mentioned one time in Edwin Coddington's 574-page book on the Gettysburg campaign, nor is it mentioned even once in James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you to find it anywhere one place that you can look for is a book by a guy named Peter Soros uh, is the exception to this. But but we're going to talk about this. And this, that being said, the BMI is a group that's going to prove itself to be just as important to George Meade as the infantry, cavalry, or artillery. Its decision um, and the information that it gives to Meade is going to directly lead to Meade even fighting at Gettysburg and give him the tools necessary ultimately to win what's going to be the largest battle ever fought in the western hemisphere so so that's so why so why is the bmi you know who are they and why are they so important well for one um you know you think today you think of something like the cia which is central intelligence agency 
it's control, you know, federal government. There is nothing like this at, at this time in the United States at all. It's decentralized. Um, it's so decentralized that Abraham Lincoln is going to hire agents on his own and personally receive the reports. Each army in the Civil War, you know, whether you're in Eastern theater or Western theater, they all have their own means of gathering intelligence. So there's nothing central like there is today. So that's why the BMI is kind of this, you know, it's one of the changes, just one of a few changes that General Joseph Hooker, when he takes over the Army of the Potomac, that he is going to make. Um, because gathering intelligence, I mean, you need that if you're in the Army. You know? Yeah, the, the war the war is getting ready to finish its second year of 1862. It is clear the Union Army needed a reboot in almost every possible way. But just a set where we were at this point, uh, General Joab Ambrose Burnside, you know, he was in charge of the Army of the Potomac, that the Union's primary army operating in the Eastern Theater, and he's going to get replaced on January 26th of 1863 by General Joseph Hooker uh, after the disastrous Battle of Fredericksburg and the subsequent infamous Mud March. Now, Joseph Hooker, Mary, another good-looking Bostonian, by the way, you just can saying, see right? his statue at the Massachusetts State true. House in Boston. That is true. He finds himself basically commanding an extremely despondent 120,000-man army, and he's going to immediately see this needs a changes need to be made here. And he is going to immediately begin to address those changes to help improve morale and effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a few changes that he makes. First of all, sanitation improvements. Things are not good in the camps. And, you know, bad sanitation means you're going to have more illnesses. So he improves sanitation. Now, at this point in med medicine, they haven't quite discovered that kind of connection. But Hooker is just like, improve the sanitation. Um, and obviously, with that comes medical improvement with the hospitals and all that. They have fresh baked bread. They are also going to, and one kind of smaller, it's kind of cool change, is this is where the core badges come about, which had originally um, been Car Phil Carney's idea, but he's obviously not around at this point. All his problems, I guess we could say, are behind him. Um, talked about in an episode about Chantilly, uh, what happens to poor uh, to Phil Carney. But this is where you get, you know, like the ha Crescent Moon for the 11th Corps, the Star for the 12th Corps. That's where this comes about. But then the other thing, which is the focus of our episode tonight, is the Bureau of Military Information that Hooker just, he needs a way to gather intelligence. And the one thing that he said when he took over the Army of the Potomac is, um, you know, regarding where Lee was, where the Army of Northern Virginia was. Now, he knows at this point they're across the Rappahannock, but he says there was no means, no organization, and no apparent effort to obtain such information. And that is why he forms the BMI. He does. And you just when he takes over, you know, you mentioned before, Burnside, for the most part, his Secret Service quotation figures, it consisted literally of one single private. That was it. That was the whole deal. And, you know, Hooker comes in. He makes all these changes you talked about. But he also improves morale, too. He extends yep. furloughs. He clears out corruption. He gets a booster for the Wi-Fi. He does all these things to help out this morale. Builds a few and, Dairy right, Queens. He does. But the big thing is that he really wants is that espionage. And things are going to change when Hooker is going to get a report from his provost marshal, General Marcena uh, Patrick, and about, about the existing espionage network and how Hooker can best use it. Now, Patrick was also upset at the current state of affairs uh, with this. He's going to write in his diary, I'm trying to make up a system of secret service, but find it hard to organize where there is so little good material. I do not fancy the class of men 
and think they do not fancy me. Now, Hooker is also going to receive a letter from a man named John C. Babcock. And we're going to talk about him. He's, he's a future BMI agent later. He's going to offer his interrogation information gathering skills as well to Hooker. Now, Hooker is going to be extremely interested in organizing this espionage service. So almost immediately, he's going to order Marcena Patrick to organize a system of intelligence gathering as soon as he possibly can. And, and the result of this creation is going to be the Bureau of Military Information, BMI, if you're nasty. That's what it's going to be called. Now, now the thing what's interesting is well, how, before he sets this thing up, Hooker's probably, he's, he's a Bostonian, so he's kind of a paranoid fella, right? Yeah. First thing he's going to do is begin to tighten his own ship here, right? His first thing he's going to do is going to ban newspaper exchanges, between his men and the Confederates in the camp. They would go down and trade papers, tobacco, all Coffee. that stuff, right? Right. But by the end of 19, by the end of 1862, northern newspapers, they're printing army locations, troop numbers, command changes. I mean, and so in Lee, all he had to do to find out where the army was, his adversary, is after he finished reading the funny papers, <laughs> big Dilbert guy probably, was read the newspaper of where the army was. Hooker's going to realize the danger of this media. Big shocker. What a surprise. Some yeah. things never change. He's going to put an end to this newspaper trading with the Rebs immediately. And he knew if he needed a good espionage service, he had to dedicate somebody to run it. And after some serious thought, the man he puts in charge of the BMI is going to be a guy named Colonel George Sharp. Um, and Marcena Patrick also loved this choice as well. Patrick's going to write about this, the Sharp pick. I had a, a, a long conversation with Colonel Sharp about the job chief, um, of chief of the Secret Service Department. And then he says, Sharp appears well, and I think he'll be a very pleasant man to be associated yeah. with. Patrick and, and Hooker chose wisely with George Sharp. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. And a little background on Sharp. Okay, you know, George Henry Sharp, he's born in February 26th of 1828 in Kingston, uh, New York, which is about 60 miles south of Albany, Mary, mm -hmm. not far away, right? It's right on and the Hudson River. Fun fact Kingston is also the birthplace of ESPN anchor Brian Kenny. Doesn't matter me to anything random. at all, but I was kind of random, so we'll go with that. Sharp wasn't a West Pointer, he went to Rutgers. That's where he was in, in New Jersey, if you don't know Rutgers. But he also graduated from Yale Law School. And so from 1847 to 1851, Sharp is going to work as a lawyer in New York City at the firm of Catawalder, Wickersham, and Taft. Now, this is New York City's oldest law firm. It is one that still exists today. And by the way, if you, if you don't know them, they were the ones who offered all that free legal services to the victims of 9-11 in New York City. That was these guys. So this this still around today. So Sharp also had a short stint as a secretary legislate at the uh, in Vienna mm -hmm. before returning to law in 1854. The war broke out in 1861. Now Sharp is you know like a lot of attorneys we talked about guys like Harm Granberry, uh, John Brown Gordon. You know he has that natural leadership ability, yeah. right? And he's very intelligent After too. Like he picked up a lot of like he did a lot of writing in Europe and stuff and a lot of like had to do some diplomacy and he's considered to be very, very intelligent by a lot of people. He's, he's a very smart guy. So after the war, Sharp, before the, after Fort Sumter rather, Sharp is going to become the captain of company B of the 20th New York. 
He's going to spend on that just a thirty three month enlistment, basically guarding forts at Annapolis, Maryland, and Baltimore. And he's going to his service is going to end. And then when Lincoln calls up that seventy five thousand troops, he's going to reenlist in July. Um, and and he's going to raise almost a full regiment, nine hundred volunteers, and he's going to be appointed colonel of the hundred twentieth New York, also known as the Washington Guards. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said before, he's a natural leader, and he just seen his career tends to parallel a lot Granberry at this point. Yes, yeah, that's the one thing that I was noticing this natural like leadership ability. Like we talked about Hiram Granberry in episode 120, so just the episode before this one, you know, this natural leadership. He really likes his men. His men like him. Um, you know, he's he's so loyal to them that he's going to refuse a offer of promotion to command a brigade that he just wants to stay with these guys um mm-hmm. and and keep with them yeah his men he he's very popular his men he was part of the excelsior brigade december of 1862 he's going to end up at the battle of fredericksburg mm-hmm. and you know he and like i said he must have shown himself a really dependable leader because not long after this when hooker takes over in january of 63 you know he this is when he's going to approach sharp about taking over this brand new BMI. Mm-hmm. Now, the fun fact about Sharp Mary is he turned it down the first time. He said, no thanks, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But he's gonna finally agree to do this on February 11th of 1863. And this is through the date of this, that the BMI was born. Um, and you know, the first thing he's gonna, like any, any good leader, first thing he's gonna do, he's gonna surround himself with good people. Mm-hmm. So what he's gonna do, he's gonna bring two people in to be his trusted assistants. The first one, is going to be that John C. Babcock we talked about, who originally sent that request to help out. The other one is going to be a guy named John McEntee. Now, Babcock, he's a former associate of Alan Pinkerton yes. in Chicago, who, right? And Alan Pinkerton, um, people probably recognize that name from he was gathering intelligence when McClellan was in charge of the Army of the Potomac, and he left uh, when McClellan was uh, fired. He's also the guy who helped arrange Lincoln, the guy with yeah. the hat, to get to Washington for an inauguration after all the, the assassins. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're familiar, if you, if you Google BMI, okay, um, this, you're going to see that famous picture in February of 64. And you're going to see Babcock, McEntee, and Sharp all sitting around a tent. Yep. That, that's kind of into it. But, you know, McEntee and Babcock, you know, they're going to take on the role of assistants. They're not field agents. These aren't guys going to get information. No. Their job really is help collect and analyze the information that Sharp can use to give to Hooker to help with this intel. Now, the thing about it is, you know, this is this this the field agents, the people who go out and get their stuff to, to gather this information. A lot of them are going to be elite cavalry troopers for the most part, but the core part of the BMI is going to be citizens, including slaves, who are living behind Confederate lines. The amazing thing about the BMI is the most amount of men they ever had was 70. That's all they had, you know, and most of them were half of them anyway, were these dedicated scouts. And, you know, the, the reason to use these, the people in the South already is that they, they wanted to find dedicated people who are already there. I mean, it's pretty tough to put a rebel uniform on a guy from South Boston, and send yep. him to, the, to Virginia and play yep. the role. You know, can you imagine yeah, Bobby Lee's wicked piss a kid? Yeah. Oh, my you know? God. Well, it's like some of, those, some of those guys from, you know, some of these scouts and agents, they actually they did put on Confederate uniforms and some of them. Right. There, there's stories that some of them ended up with Mosby's Raiders like 
Could you imagine, like, just be like, you're this northerner, you're like, you're going off on an but, adventure with Mosby? And, that, and that's why you just had so many actors be part of these spy networks. Yeah. But but we're talking about the specific BMI. You're not going to send a guy from Jersey down into Virginia pretending to love sweet tea and country music because they're going <laughs> to they're going to sniff you out. The same reason why when they gave money to these guys to try to bribe people, it was Confederate money. Yeah. Because if you had Union greenbacks, you were as good as gone because they knew that you would have to have been a spy. Mm -hmm. The BMI, one of the things they did was the government had a whole bunch of Confederate cash. What Hooker wanted more than anything for Sharp to do was to get as much information about Lee's army as possible. Yep. Troop strength not being number one. That was their primary objective. You know, there was so much confusion. We talked about McClellan going back and forth. How many men does Lee have? We hear these crazy numbers all over the place. Sharp needed to get this information to Hooker. Hooker really wanted to know, and it kept him up at night, how many men Lee really, really had. And it was an issue, like I said, going all the way back to McClellan. To this point, Sharp is going to utilize something called all sourcing. Now, what this is, it, it, it's a way to gain as much information as possible to form a larger picture, okay? This included interrogating rebel deserters, reading newspapers when you can get them, interviewing slaves, which they did a lot, all designed to gather as much information from every possible angle. Sharp wanted to cast that wide net using all these sources to help figure out how many guys Lee had and what he was doing. And then if he had those numbers, he knew what Lee was capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So the commanders, you know, they received basically, you know, um, what is this? Not an assemblage of undigested bits of news seemingly of equal weight, but true intelligence. The finished product of systematic information analysis. That's what the phrase was they wanted to use. BMI used things like invisible ink. They use balloons that go a thousand feet high in the sky to view the Confederate troops, which gave the extra benefit of intimidating the Confederate troops yep. who they, they would shoot at them, <laughs> but they were, they were, they were too high. Um, but basically, you know, one of the BMI's most common sources of info, like we said, was unionists in the South, mm -hmm. but especially slaves behind rebel lines. And this, you know, the whole reason why Hooker was so on board with this BMI was because how much Lee was in his head. Oh, yeah. Right? And, and that, that's the thing, too, is he just he owned a space in, in, in Hooker's head. And what Hooker did not know was that Lee also had spies on behalf, on, on behalf to keep Hooker in the dark and send as many mixed messages as possible in the, all these contradictory reports. But this is Hooker's mindset in June of 1863, in the beginning of what will be known as the Gettysburg Campaign. Right. So, you know, we're not going to talk all about the details and all the stuff, but in the spring of 63, you know, both the armies for the most part are close to Fredericksburg, Virginia, and they're kind of hanging out and Lee's going to begin to move. And this was when probably the most important piece of intel that Hooker's ever going to receive from Sharp's Bureau of Military Information is going to come around this point. You know, one of Sharp's most valuable sources of information like we said, was the slaves in Virginia. Yeah. Enter an escaped slave from, the, from a rebel officer, and his name is Charlie Rice. And, and he knew all the high-ranking rebs. He was, he was a slave of a rebel officer. He knew them by sight. 
He knew he knew exactly who they were. Wright is in Culpeper, Virginia. When he notices a large Confederate force passing through the town, just after uh, June 9th of 63, this is right after Brandy Station, the Cavalry Battle, right? Wright is going to report back to Sharp's assistant, John McEntee, about what he saw. McEntee is going to write, this is on June 12th of 1863, this is what McEntee is going to write now. He's going to write a contraband, okay, right, captured last Tuesday, states that he has been living in Culpeper for some time past. He said he saw Yule's Corps passing through that place destined for the Shenandoah Valley and Maryland, and Longstreet was coming up. Mm-hmm. Another, B, another BMI agent, a guy named Martin Hogan, he, he reported soon later that he saw another contraband who kind of gave a similar statement. But not only did Wright give details about Yule's and Longstreet's Corps, he gave meticulous details that about how... That was his how, thing, is he was so meticulous you know, in, I mean, in his he, recounting of stuff. He was he was able to list by name a dozen rebel regiments all in these corps, mm-hmm. all of which matched some of the intel Sharp already had, so it filled in the gaps. Wright's memory, like you just said, and attention to detail absolutely stunned the BMI people about how accurate this guy was. Now, Hooker... He, he knew he had to move because he had to stay between Lee and Washington. That was always the plan. But he has real intelligence that Lee is actually on the move. Uh, knew it, Hooker knew it was, it, was time, it was time to go at this point, right? And it's funny because even with this intel, people were cautious. Dan Butterfield, right? Yes. Old, old Dan. He's going he's to he's caution Hooker from moving too quick. He's going he's gonna to tell Hooker, we cannot go boggling around until we know what we are going after. That's what he said to him. Oh my God. And, well, well that, that's the but, thing is they're trying to, the thing that they're doing with the BMI is, is prior to the BMI when it was like Pinkerton giving reports to McClellan or what have you, you know, it was very vague. It was not analyzed. It, there was no analysis to it. And what, you know, what Sharp and, and the BMI are doing is they're taking these reports. They're taking you know, what could be a rumor, what they're getting from contrabands, what they're hearing from other people, what they're also the interrogation of prisoners is very important too. Um, you know, and they're piecing together and they're, you know, sometimes he would give pass something along to Hooker that said, this might be a rumor, but we've heard it from X number of people. Like he would attach kind of an analysis to what he was doing. That wasn't done before. That is, that is another huge, you know, that's a huge change that's been made is hookers getting these reports that are, you know, have been analyzed. And sometimes, you know, if Sharp didn't feel a source was reliable, he would basically say, you know what, this person I interrogated is an idiot and we can't trust what he's saying. And again, that could have been one of the spies that Lee has, right? That is kind of making Hooker maybe misstep something or whatever. Um, But, you know, just the fact, like going into the, like, you know, keep in mind as they're going into the Gettysburg campaign, they are coming off this horrible defeat at chancellorsville as well right, but not only not only that i mean they've been hearing these rumors for years mcclellan's yep. being told by guys like governor Curtin that there's mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of rebs just over the board they don't know what's what no. so this service is designed to really pinpoint what is actually well, what the important thing is the troop numbers and that seems to be the number one thing that the bmi is going after troop numbers right. how many does he have yeah. as well as movements where are they going and the information that Cooker is getting through Sharp 
is coming from the BMI. It's not coming from the cavalry. It's coming from the BMI. So on June 13th, Hooker, he's going to order his army to move and pursue Lee's army. And they're about three days behind Yule, but they're just, in, but they're just east and parallel of Longstreet. And they're staying between these rebel troops and Washington. Now, this, this movement, this movement basically on BMI's intelligence for the most part, like I mentioned before, the cavalry. It caused some of the cavalry guys to get a little butthurt about this yeah. because the information, right? And so there was friction between the BMI and and the cavalry. You know, many many disliked the BMI because they felt their work, their job was dishonorable. It wasn't man to man. It was it was kind of clandestine. As a matter of fact, the the um, the division commander of the cavalry, the first division, John Buford, Mary, perhaps you've heard of him. Yes. You know, he, he reluctantly agreed to take some BMI agents, including Sharp's assistant McEntee, mm-hmm. on him, with him, to ride around with his troopers as they move north towards Pennsylvania. So as Lee's moving north, you know, Lee, he's spread out. Everybody knows he's famously spread out. And this is causing a lot of headaches for these agents because, and, and the cavalry for that matter, too. Hooker, despite all of his intel, you know, he's still in the dark. He's he's more confused than a Buffalo Bills player in a playoff game at this point, right? <laughs> he he just he just doesn't he doesn't. There's so much information, so much going around. He yeah. just doesn't know what to follow. So for all of this BMI intel, the one thing they don't have, like we said before, is the manpower numbers. And, and for the BMI guys, so they couldn't track all these guys, yeah. right? They, they're they're limited. And the one thing Hooker does have in his favor, though, is that Lee doesn't know he's being pursued at this point. But this made Sharp's job even even more difficult if you think about it. He's going to end up assigning both Babcock and McEntee to John Reynolds' first corps. And, and they're going to basically get information to Sharp, who will then analyze it, the info, almost in real time. So you can imagine the pressure on Sharp now. He's been, the rebel army's moving. Everyone's moving. You're getting all these pieces of information. And, and Hooker is relying on Sharp to basically to truly be the eyes and ears of the military at this point. And, you know, for Lee, you know, the thought that he was moving blindly through north without Jeb Stewart, that's been overstated. We've talked about that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, Lee is still spread by the time he gets into Pennsylvania. He's spread over a 50-mile radius mm-hmm. once he does get into the state, right? One thing that is apparent for Lee is that he doesn't seem to know that BMI even exists at this point. Um, and he has complete, you know, does not respect the Union Cavalry one bit, right? Um, but he's basically, he, he doesn't think Hooker is capable of tracking him at this point. And so when Stewart disappears, those eight critical days, yep. right, you hear all the time, you know, um, Starting on June 25th, you know, for the most part, Lee is oblivious at this point to the Union advance. Mm-hmm. And it isn't so much because of Stewart. It's because he, he just doesn't he doesn't think Hooker's capable of knowing yeah. he's moving or how to follow him. Well, it's probably he, based off Chancellorsville, too. And you have to remember, like Lee is going into the Gettysburg campaign. I kind of want to say he's a little bit arrogant off of that chance, the, the victory at Chancellorsville and all that. And he's just like, whatever, I don't need to worry about Hooker. Like, he's just. You know, he's like, there's no way they, they know what I'm doing yeah. right now. They, they were they were the Rebs were on a heater. They yeah. were red hot. They were they were going. June 15th, Lee is gonna cross the Potomac and he's gonna soon later cross into Pennsylvania. And almost immediately, 
the BMI starts getting a lot of very accurate reports yeah. now from the citizens of Pennsylvania who are starting to give them very detailed uh, information about the troop numbers and location of Lee's approaching army. You know, and it's funny, you know, less than two weeks later, Confederate troops under Jubal Early, you know, they're going to get to Gettysburg on June 26th, right? Um, and the rebel general is going to make his, you know, he's going to make his big ransom of the city. He's going to want bacon. He's going to want salt and DQ gift cards. He's going to want the <laughs> whole thing. And of course, hats and shoes, all that stuff in return for not burning down the town. But while this is all going on, and actually as early as June 16th, these citizen spies are gathering intel on Early's troops as soon as they were in Greencastle, PA, just south of Chambersburg. They were being, they were being spied on the mm -hmm. whole time. Now, one of the most influential people in the history of the Battle of Gettysburg is one that very few people, even the Gettys people nerds, have never heard of. And this is a local lawyer and part of the Citizen Spy Network, a guy named David McConaughey. Mm -hmm. Okay, McConaughey, he studied law under Thaddeus Stevens. And at the time of the battle, he was the president of the newly created Evergreen Cemetery. He's the guy who helped supervise the construction of the gatehouse, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that right there. Fun fact about McConaughey, he's the guy who forced Elizabeth Thorne to bury the bodies. Yep. She's the one. He's the guy who told her, right? And he basically led the citizen militia called the Adams Rifles, made up of his law clients. How's that for a retainer, by wow. the way? You know, you know he does, <laughs> and 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 they're very and they're very active monitoring Lee's movements in late June of 1863. Now McConaughey, he's going to give a lot of rebel. He's going to give intel of the rebel cavalry to a guy named Major Granville Haller from York, PA. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where he's from who's going to pass it along to General Darius Couch and Governor Andrew Curtin. This intel that McConaughey and his men provided the Union Army was so valuable that after the battle, George Meade himself, the big man, is going to write a letter personally thanking McConaughey for all the critical information he and his spies provided because he gave them real-time active info on who he was going up against. Even with all this, all these this info on the rebels in PA, by late in late uh, in late June, even the BMI was based. Even the BMI was confused at this point about yeah. Lee's army. They were enormous and they were going all over the place. Well, they have some ideas of numbers. You know, June twenty seventh, they've got you know the BMI counted Lee's army as having eighty thousand infantry, two hundred seventy five artillery pieces. These are just estimates. Yeah. June thirtieth, that's updated to be a hundred thousand infantry and cavalry. And that, like, it's some said that was overestimated, but I mean, I don't think we'll ever know the true numbers, but the BMI, I think, like, I mean, kudos to them for trying to get these numbers. Like, keep in mind, they're doing this, this is before cell phones and all the other cool shit we have today that, you know. I, I think the, I think that the, uh, the Apple phone, the Apple II was out, I think, at that point. Yeah. But the, the connection, the kind of, wow, you know, the mounds. Had a pretty shitty camera, though, on it. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the one thing that they, they did, though, is they wanted to find a focal point to find out. And they did notice that it did seem that most of the Rebs at some point were passing through Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. It was like mm -hmm. the limp node. And, and so what they basically did was they, they used this point. And they confirmed that Lee and the Brass were in town. And so one local guy named Jacob Hoke. He's going to be sitting there watching, and there's going to be a meeting that's going to take place right in the town square. If you've been at Chambersburg, there's a, there's a little marker on this, literally in the middle of a mm -hmm. rotary, 
right? I think it's a star, but it's it's a little marker. We've been there. We but, nearly got right. killed in traffic trying yep. to get a picture so, of it. So be careful. Fun times. But this is a, but this is the spot where Robert E. Lee is going to have a meeting with E.P. Hill, and Jacob Hoke is going to be sitting there watching this meeting take place. He doesn't so much care for the most part what they're saying. He probably can't hear them. But what he was curious about is he wanted to see which road they left with, where they went after the meeting. He figured that the road they took would give him a good idea of where they were ultimately headed, the army. The roads went towards Harrisburg. They went towards Gettysburg and Baltimore. So when Hoke saw Lee and his men take the road towards Gettysburg, he immediately jumps on a train to Harrisburg. This is Hoke now. And is going to give this information personally to Darius Couch, who's in charge of the defenses of Pennsylvania. You know, though Hooker is getting good information on where Lee could be going now, like we said before, it's a thousand times now, he's in the dark about those troop numbers. And, and this is the reason why that Hooker makes that begging plea to get those 12,000 men from Harper's Ferry, that garrison from Lincoln, because he doesn't know how many he has, but he knows there's a lot of them and they're coming, right? Now, obviously, Lincoln's going to turn him down and Hooker is going to famously play chicken and call his bluff, threaten to quit if I don't get him. And Lincoln says, all right, have a Bye. nice day. And he's going to basically give him his walking papers. And that's going to be it. He's gonna, Lincoln's going to call his bluff and Hooker's going gonna, gonna to resign. So on June 28th, 1863, Hooker is going to be gone. And the new commander of the Army of the Potomac is um is that oh, that turtle guy? General George Gordon Oh, Meade. that's right. George Gordon Meade's going to take over. But unfortunately for the PMI, this loss of we're going to talk about this later, this loss, this loss of Hooker really meant the loss of their best allies. We're going to talk about Meade. Meade wasn't very enthusiastic about the spy network as Hooker was, and we'll, we'll talk mm -hmm. about that later. Um, nonetheless, when Meade does take over, he's going to find that his former boss was not very forthcoming with his own information. No. And knowledge is power, right? And Hooker wanted to keep it all for himself. So it's a tough spot for Meade because now not only is he trying to figure out how many men and where Lee is, he's going to find out how many men and how where his own army is. Yeah. So he's got he's got double trouble now. Well, this right? is no why wonder he's always, to... no wonder he's always so miserable, Mary. No I would was. be too. This is why he has to keep Dan Butterfield on his staff because it's like, I don't think he particularly liked but Butterfield, and I think the feeling was mutual. But I mean, Butterfield had worked with Hooker, and he probably knew shit, so that's why he keeps him around because he probably knows stuff. Yeah. But what? Right. So he's got to find out what is the first thing me do. He starts to re read those reports from David McConaughey we mm -hmm. talked about, and that Citizen Spy Network. And he quickly learns that John Brown Gordon, his brigade under, under Early, has already moved through the town on the 26th and is heading towards York. Also, the intelligence from McConaughey shows that Robert Rhodes and Allegheny Johnson's division, a little clubby, right? Yep. They're moving towards Carlisle. The hard thing is with, you know, 160 years later, it all makes sense. You know, they go to Carlisle, oh, yeah. they come back. But in real time, your your head swimming. They're going left and right, and up and down. They're going everywhere. I can't imagine reports. how that we like. You know, I've just taken over the AOP, and I have no idea where my men are. Yeah, like, no. I can't imagine that. That that's terrible. And, and throw into the fact that on June twenty eighth, Meade is going through these reports. He's going to also get reports from the BMI. Yep. That the Rebs are still in Maryland. 
He's getting old information that he doesn't know when it is. So he ha- he's getting contradictory reports from his own spy agency at this point. Did nobody timestamp that? Apparently not. Nobody must have. Uh, I don't know what they must have done oh. with that. But but so the, but so this is what Mead has to figure out. So Mead and Sharp, they're going to have to sift through all this information, all these reports, all of which seem legit, even the contradictory ones. You can, you can imagine just reading this in real time, knowing the stakes. Mm-hmm. But they both agree, based on the information they have, they're pretty sure Lee's in Maryland. I mean, in Pennsylvania yeah. and, and around Chambersburg. They're pretty confident of that case. So what's going to happen? Mead is going to use Sharp's info. He's going to take a leap of faith with this BMI information and begin to move his army to block Washington and his move his troops to Emmitsburg, Maryland, and Westminster, Maryland, based on this BMI intel. That's what he's going to start to do. And Sharp is going to seek out McConaughey, and he's going to be able, and he's going to basically be able to confirm Lee's whereabouts and give Meade that confidence to move his men forward. He said, listen, I'm I'm 99% sure this information is legit. Mm-hmm. And Meade's like, okay. I have to I have to move. This is what he's gonna do. The information, like I said, that McConaughey gave Meade impressed them so much because he they could not believe how accurate it was. And he uses Intel right up until the first shots are fired on July 1st, uh, over mm-hmm. at Knoxville Ridge there. And you can because I can't stress enough the the confusion at this point in the Union Army, the oh, brass, absolutely. the blood. Forget, forget the fact if, if You've been in charge three days. If you've been in charge for three years, this is confusing. There's so much going on. But basically, this information is going to clear up a little bit of the clouds. Gettysburg is a battle where both armies met on the march. It's a confusing battle anyway. So any anything you have in your head that you can substantiate is important. Mm-hmm. The day before the battle on June 30th, this is when Calvary under John Buford, right? He's going to find no Rebs in Gettysburg. But he did find some west of the town near Hare's Ridge. Okay, now this is this is when you get lucky if you're George Meade. Okay, yeah. Buford's going to run into a citizen coming from Chambersburg, and he's carrying a pass signed by Robert E. Lee. Love to have that, by the way. Oh. Pass signed by Robert. E. Okay, dated. I wonder who has June, that now? I don't know. Probably somebody. But it's dated June thirtieth, eighteen sixty-three. This guy Lee gave him the pass in Chambersburg. Buford gets it, gives it to Meade. What does Meade now know? He knows in real time that on June 30th, the same day, Lee exactly, he knows where Lee is. Mm-hmm. So he's like, oh my God, thank you. All this information he took that leap of faith with, he was right about. Yeah. So, so he knew. Now, um, basically the Rebs, they're just as confused too. They're trying to use the citizen intel to find out what? If the Union Army's in Gettysburg, right? Do you think there's this, going to be a disturbance in our town? Right. This so is the bad. story, that story of that doctor from Virginia with one of the greatest names ever. John W. Crapster O'Neill is his name. He's a, he's a doctor from Virginia. He is going to be stopped going from Gettysburg towards Chambersburg, going the other way. He's right around Hare's Ridge, right in that area between probably the uh, McPherson Bar and Hare's Ridge. He's going to get caught by Jay Johnson Pettigrew and Heath's division. And he's going to basically ask this doctor, are there any Union troops in the city? He goes, Gettysburg? He's like, no, nope. And you can only imagine the pucker effect moment he yeah. had when, when Johnson sees Buford's cavalry. 
And he, as you know, he, he thinks he's pretty sure it's Union Calvary. Yeah. But again, this what this goes to show is the citizens were scared out of their minds of telling anybody in any uniform anything at this point. Yeah. Because and that's what it was. But the thing about it, though, is is he is knowing knowing where Lee is now. Meade knows roughly that all these other reports are right. That that Early and, and Gordon they're heading towards York. That, that Johnson and Rhodes are north in Carlisle, and Longstreet is likely with Lee in Chambersburg. Mm-hmm. So he knows where the pieces are. There's the, the Confederate Army on the 30th of June is spread over a 55 mile umbrella, going from Chambersburg to York, spread like an arc over over Gettysburg, and. He, you know, for the most part, he knows now that Lee's army spread. It's split up a little bit. And for the most part, you know, he knows that basically he can send now that left wing of the infantry into town under John Reynolds, Mm -hmm. the first, the third and the 11th. Right. And he can do his recon in force to go into town and basically feel confident, even though he's getting updated information now in real time. The Ewell's Corps is moving now towards the Gettysburg Cashtown area. So he knows now that there's a good chance that the Confederates know that the Union's there because they're starting to close that umbrella slowly, right? His Pipe Creek plan is written and he's ready to set into motion. The whole thing goes on that, it's going forward. But suddenly this information is coming in fast and furious to Meade. Who has to decide his actions now, you know, based on this new set of intelligence he's receiving, knowing the pros and cons of each decision are going to affect this battle, mm-hmm. right? He's getting reports from guys like Herman Haupt, his railroad director, that civil engineer. He has that house at the corner over there, Fairfield in, in um, Confederate Avenue, yeah. that house seems that's always for sale. Um, he's getting reports, you know, of an immediate attack he's, that helps telling him. That you know, he he writes at one o'clock in the morning on the thirtieth. The Meade's actually not going to get until two p.m. on the first. And he's like, "Yeah, thanks. I know this already. I'm getting my ass attacked. Yeah. You know, this is the way <laughs> it is, right?" But the one piece of information that Meade is working with is incorrect, and he's under the assumption that Lee's troop numbers are actually twenty percent more yeah. than they really are. He thinks they're they're bigger than they really are. Okay, he was embellishing. A lot of guys embellish Mary, and that's what he was doing. You know? (laughs) (laughs) But the thing about it, though, we're not going to go into the details of the Battle of Gettysburg. Everybody everybody knows this stuff who's listening to this. But basically, the Federals, for the most part, you know, they're able to secure Cemetery Hill on the 1st. Thank you, Howard. Exactly. July 2nd, (laughs) Longstreet's going to try that echelon attack to break the Union lines. You know, blah, blah, Dan Sickles, Chamberlain, Barksdale, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Everybody knows what happens on July 2nd, right? But the most important part and most underrated aspect of the BMI that happened during the battle is going to take place on the night of July 2nd after that second day's battle. This is such a cool story where like, so it's end of the second day and, you know, Meade is going to have this meeting with his core commanders to decide, you know, are we going to stay and fight it on the third day? And like you, like Darren said, you know, it, the, the troop numbers that Meade has are, are 20% higher than what they actually turn out to be. So what happens is the BMI has determined from the Confederate prisoners taken on July 1st and July 2nd, um, they came from nearly 100 different regiments. 
except the four brigades of Pickett's division, which was still coming up from the rear, a.k.a. the Savannah. So, therefore, Lee doesn't really have a lot of fresh troops to put in except for Pickett's division on July the 3rd. And this is why Sharp, he is summoned for this 9 p.m. meeting that Meade is going to have on July the 2nd. And he will present his findings at this meeting to the Corps commanders. Right. And to so, just, just to, so just to reset this, he, they basically capture 1,300 rebel troops. Mm-hmm. And the BMI is going to interrogate them. They're not going to torture them. They're not going to waterboard them. They're not going to do anything <laughs> like this. Okay. They're simply going to sit down and ask them three questions. Basically, your regiment, your brigade, and your division. And that's all they're going to ask them. They're going to make – basically, Sharp is going to make envision a big bingo board, a big draft card, okay? Yeah. He's just going to check off, okay, Heath. You know, I'm going to check off, you know, Pender. I'm gonna, and he's going to notice that every division is represented except Pickett. So he knows – what does he know? He knows two pieces of information. One, Pickett is not there yet. Yeah. So the only troops that Lee has who are fresh – are the 6,000 troops in Pickett's division, okay? Now, whether he knows that there were still a couple of brigades left behind in Richmond, Pickett has five. He ends up with only, only three, right? Mm-hmm. But but he doesn't know how many he has, but he knows that the only troops that are fresh are Pickett's. So he knows that if Lee is going to attack, it's only going to have 6,000 fresh guys, and anybody else who attacks with him has been battered already. They're going to have to fight again. And so when Sharp gets this information and goes through it, to what your point what you just said was, this, cl- this cl- confusion of how many men Lee has suddenly crystallizes for me. So you talk about that, that meeting they had, um, and they called a council of war, which is really, it wasn't, it really was, it was just a meeting. And now Sharp's going to present his information. He pulls out that big board, the big draft card, okay? Yeah. And he says, here's what they have. We need to decide basically three questions. Do we stay? Everyone said stay. We fight offensive or defensive. Everyone except Howard said defense. And then they all agree <laughs> we're gonna fight, we're gonna fight for one more day. Howard That's always says it. to fight offense for some reason. Well, you, I mean, I think he didn't want to, but he knew damn well he was getting outvoted. No, let's kill him. Offense. You know. But I think, but that's what it was, right? And so they're going to sit together and they're going to they're going to decide to stay. And it's the reason that they decide to stay and not leave and leave the Battle of Gettysburg, which they could have, was because now, thanks to the BMI and Sharp's men, mm-hmm. they literally know who they're fighting against. He's going to basically Meade is going to use his his skills here, and he's going to determine basically looking at where they've been attacked before. They hit my right flank. They hit my left flank. If they're going to attack again. It's going to be in my middle. This is when he's going to famously tell John Gibbon, mm-hmm. if he's going to attack, he's going to he's going to hit you right in the middle, right? And, and that that's what's going to happen. So when you when you look at this information that came through with this, now they know Lee's cards for the first time. The wily old Lee, Meade's got him. He knows he's got him mm-hmm. because it's all the all the. the the, you know, the clandestine stuff, all the mysterious numbers and truth movements. Now he knows how many he has, and he's at a pretty good likelihood of where he's going to go. Oh, by the way, throw in the fact, Meade's like, I still got the sixth core yeah. hanging over hanging over a mass yeah, album yeah, and ready he, to go. He's right? still got Sedgwick's guys. Another funny part of the story 
is that apparently like Sharp and all of what's been going on, and this is common with all of them at this time, he hadn't eaten all day. And they're in this like little house and there's this plate of crackers and like a half pint of whiskey. And I guess like Sharp starts kind of eyeing it up. And one of the generals spoke up and said, General Meade, don't you think Sharp deserves a cracker and drink? <laughs> like just because they realize like what this guy has been doing for them that he's given this intelligence. I just thought that was such a funny part of the story that there's this like it is. plate of crackers and half pint of whiskey. And someone's like, I think this guy needs a drink and a cracker. <laughs> but the, the thing, the, the, the moral of this, this portion of the story is this. It's not hyperbole to say that without Sharp's info, okay, mm-hmm. there's a really good chance Meade's vacating the dance floor. Absolutely, right? I would agree. And that, and because of this information, now Meade has a confidence they're going to stay and they're going to win. At the end of the day on, on July 3rd, when the smoke cleared, basically, um, it, it, like I said, it's easy to make a case that all this intelligence service that Hooker desperately wanted so mm-hmm. badly and Sharp took ownership of was just as important as any other any other any other group on that field. Yep. Now, unfortunately for Sharp, we said this before. Meade's enthusiasm, even after Gettysburg, for, for this BMI group, was not as strong as Hooker's. No. And the commanding general basically scaled back their operations big time. Yeah. And, and and who who knows why? Who knows what the deal is? Um, but the other piece of information that BMI caught too, I forgot to mention this. Yes, I was just going to mention they, this. I know what you're going to say. I was just going to mention it. Um, so forces of Union Cavalry uh, captured some Confederate cavalry and they confiscated letters that were right. from President Jeff Davis, uh, Confederate president, to General Lee. And one of the letters told um, was Davis basically saying to, to Lee, yeah, those reinforcements, you ain't getting them. Right. So, right, exactly. And so he knew that Meade, he knew Lee wasn't getting any reinforcements. So that, and that's another piece of the puzzle, this information, the more info you have, the better it is. It's not until really early of 1864 that now Lieutenant General U.S. Grant Mm -hmm. is going to assume full command of all Union armies when that BMI group rose again to prominence. And who knows what the deals would be, why why he kind of pushed them down, but but they're going to come back that the, you know, part two of this, you know, the um, the revenge of the BMI is going to come back. Like the search right? for Curly's gold? Search for Curly's oh, maybe that one too. <laughs> but but Grant's going to promote Sharp now to Brigadier General, and he's going to serve as Grant's basically his side for the rest of the war as a trusted ally. Yeah. At Appomattox, Sharp is going to have the title of Assistant Provost Man, uh, Marshal. And he was the man who actually paroled those 28,000 Rebs after they were surrounded at Maddox. But what the amazing thing about the BMI, like I mentioned before, at its peak, they had 70 men. That was it. And amazingly, you know how many were killed in service during the entire like 10 thing? 10 or something? 10. Yeah. 10. That's incredible when you, when you think about it. These are people you get caught, you're going to get hanged. It's incredible. I remembered that number you know there's gonna be a little gnome guy saying unfortunately you'll have to be hanged if they catch you right <laughs> that's who they're dealing with and so but to lose only 10 is remarkable that's how that's how good this group was now the bmi is going to be dissolved obviously after the war ends in 1865 mm-hmm. and the united states would not have a formal intelligence agency again until the office of naval intelligence was created in 1885 Mm-hmm. which would evolve into the United States Army Intelligence Security Command, which still exists today. So the BMI is the father of, of that group. Yeah. Af- after the war, 
Sharp is going to be sent to Europe. And they're going to see if he can figure out if they have is any European information about the Lincoln assassination. He's looking for Americans there. Um, and he's, then he's looking. Huh? In 1870, he's appointed by uh, now President Grant to be a U.S. Marshal for the Southern District of New York. And he immediately goes after the boss tweed ring. And these guys are mm-hmm. on him, like, go after him for quite a while. And, you know, one of the sad, I don't want to say it's a sad part of this, but I was reading one article about this. And the thing with the BMI (laughs) is they don't really, and this is, again, why nobody talks about it. They don't really, these guys that work for him, like Sharp, Babcock, uh, McKinty, they don't really advocate for themselves. They don't say, look what we did at all. You know, Sharp's obituary doesn't really say much about it at all. Um, no, they, 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 they and he passes away. In 19, he passes away in nineteen hundred, and as you just said, like yes, it's very, they're very obscure figures in this war, but they factor in to so much, especially Gettysburg. It's it's something that doesn't get talked a lot no, about in, in, in the role that they play. That you know that Sharp is there at that Council of War on July the second at at nine o'clock at night, and. He's saying, we know this to be true because we have, you know, not only have we done these interrogations, which was basically just saying like, you know, kind of like, remember when you were in a chat room in the 90s and it was like the ASL thing, age, sex, location. This is like, which regiment, which brigade, which division? Hell. <laughs> I, I, I went out on the weekends, Mary. <laughs> but, but the thing about it, though, is, is the, these guys, they did their job. They didn't really talk about it. Um, you know, for the most part, McEntee left the military mm-hmm. in 1868. As a colonel, he's going to return to Kingston, New York, where he's from. He'll become a businessman, foundries and stuff. He's going to die in 1903. You know, Babcock is going to become the Richmond chief of police, of all things, Mary, and before moving back to New York. And he'll, he'll like George Costanza, he became an architect. That's what he did, wow. right, for the, rest, for the rest of his life. Now, what's funny about Babcock, he was one of the three founding fathers of the New York Athletic Club. Okay, if you know that, if you know the area, where he invented basically this, um, the sliding seat for rowers. You see those things? Oh, my God. Rowing machine. I love those things. Yeah. yeah. He, he and Babcock invented that. So wow. Who, one of those things. He's going to die in 1908 after having a stroke. That's what's going to happen to him. But but basically, the thing, the, the thing in, in summation with this, you know, McEntee, Sharp, and Babcock, they are not three household names when it comes to American history. I get it. They're not. But it really, for the most part, can truly be said that during the Gettysburg campaign, which you kind of hinted at, they were just as important mm-hmm. as, as, the, as the artillery, the infantry, or the cavalry, without a doubt. And despite the cavalry, you know, like we said before, George Sharp's BMI, Bureau of Military Information, was truly the eyes and ears of the of the U.S. Army, yeah. the Army of the Potomac, because despite everything that they, the cavalry did, without that intel that Sharp and his seventy operatives got from from the, the citizens of Virginia, from Pennsylvania, Maryland, it's hard to imagine Gettysburg turning out the way it did. They were so good and so clandestine; even people today don't know about them, including people like Coddington, who I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Now, that 574-page book, okay, yeah. he does not mention one word about the BMI, that's... which is astounding, okay, because that's how good they were. They kept it quiet. Yeah, and I mean, Sears mentions it in his book, Lincoln's Lieutenants. He he talks about the BMI here and there. He actually has, like, there's quite a few, I just like, like, 
you know, there's a few sentences. If you look in the index, you'll see all the pages that he, you know, the BMI is mentioned on. And he talks a little bit about it, but not a lot with like, um, he mentions the story about the, um, I think he mentions the story about the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the war council and all that. And I read that in another, there was a really good article I found, which was focusing on George Sharp as kind of being the first like intelligence czar in the United States and why he's just not recognized, but yet he should be. And it was a really, really good article about him. Yeah, I mean, Peter Soros's book about, about George Sharp is really the, is really the best resource if, you, if you're interested in the BMI. No, again, the BMI is specific to Hooker's Army of the Potomac. This yeah. is many, you know, this is not the Pinkerton Group. This is this is not Elizabeth Van Loo, Pauline Cushman. This is a totally different. This is specific to really the Gettysburg campaign, and it's really that that the, the the nuts and bolts of. Everything Hooker had. Hooker was confused even with the BMI. It's hard to imagine how confused he would have been without them. Well, I would have been confused too, especially after Battle of Chancellorsville if I'd been hit with a piece of concrete. Oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> <Been concussed. laughs> so what's coming up for us next? What's next for us? Uh, we have to come up with another episode idea. I know we're going to be doing um, – so coming up, some of the ideas we've been kind of throwing around – um, is we might look a little bit more at some of, you know, what John Mosby did in Fairfax and all that, drill down into some of those um, things that he and his rangers were doing. We're going to do an episode about Lou Wallace, uh, probably closer to the anniversary of Shiloh. And we're going to be, you know, kind of looking at some more battles that we can cover as well that we haven't talked about yet. Um, we will be announcing our uh, books for our book club soon. We already have one in mind for April um, and we will be announcing that soon. Um, our usual YouTube live stream will be tomorrow, Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And we are going to be bringing back our roundtable as well because we haven't had one of those in a while. We're going to do a little trivia next time, Mary. Yep. We're going to give some books yep. away courtesy of the Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago. So wake the, wake the neighbors, wake the kids. Everybody come over. We're going to be doing trivia. All right. So off we go, Mary. So again, uh, the pleasure, like you say, was all yours. So we will look forward to talking to you all. Thanks for listening to everybody. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you on our YouTube live. Hope to see you on our round table. Get out there, hit the battlefields. It is a great time to get out there right now. You can walk the fields. You can see all the stuff you can't do in the summertime because of the bugs and all the things that bite and scratch. Ticks, you can the get snakes, away with your favorite, the right? Snakes. Oh, God, anyway. But in any case, check out the stuff. Research the BMI. They're very important, and uh, and you will uh, we will appreciate it. So, all right, Mary, off we go. So, everybody have a great weekend. We will talk to you all on the other side. See you all later. Come, come back, Bill. Come back. Oh, come back. I miss you. <laughs> See y'all later, guys. Bye. Bye.